Please turn with me to James chapter 4. We'll be focusing on the second part of verse 8, but I'll read verses 7 through 10. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. In this sobering passage in James. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom this morning, that, we, that you would give us Wisdom from your spirit to apply this word to, to each and every one of our hearts. That you would cause us to examine ourselves, to, to examine our repentance before you. Is it a true repentance? Do, do we have sins that, that we need to, to repent of? We ask for your Holy Spirit, to regenerate anyone who, who does not know you this day. That they would confess their sins and turn from them and turn to, to faith in Christ this very day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a very, as I've said, a very sobering passage in James. But one of the things we need to be careful of is to not have itching ears. It's easy for, I think, everyone to not like certain parts of Scripture or to, to think to themselves, I, I want to hear this, I want to hear that. And even in the Reformed world, it's very easy for us to, to desire to hear what we want to hear. And in doing that, we would never want to hear the message that, that James is giving in this text because it is a difficult and it is a convicting message, but, but it is a healthy message, a necessary message. There is a time when it is appropriate to, to emphasize to just purely emphasize that, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is a, a biblical concept, a biblical truth. There is a time to comfort the, the struggling Christian. 
by pointing to them to the fact that, that they don't have to worry that their sins are no more. But there's also a time when such comfort would be inappropriate and potentially harmful but without a call to repentance. James is writing to believers, but he does so in a way that is alarming and, and shocking. There's a time to say to the Christian, you have made a profession of faith. You, you were baptized. You, you joined the church. But you are living in a way that is inconsistent with your profession. So while we emphasize the, the grace of God to the, to the broken Christian, key word, broken Christian, struggling with sin, genuine repentance needs to be emphasized to, to, the, to, the, to the Christian who is backsliding, to the Christian who is living an unrepentant sin. This is what James does in our text this morning. We are commanded to draw near to God with, with the promise that He will draw near to us in return. But, but how do we draw near to God? What are we to do? What does this mean? We draw near to Him through genuine repentance. This is what James is calling us to. And, and, and genuine repentance, a comprehensive repentance, includes Repenting of our deeds, repenting of our motives, and true repentance even involves our emotions. We'll see that next week. So let us first look at our deeds. Genuine repentance means repenting of our sinful deeds. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, writing to Christians. Hands represent deeds done, the, the things that we do. We can think of Pilate. When, when Pilate recognized that, that he could not prevail against the crowd, he, he wanted to set Jesus free, but, but he recognized the crowd was not going to allow that. But he didn't want any part in that guilt. So what did he do? He, he, he washed his hands in front of them to, to symbolize that my hands are taking no part in these sinful deeds that are about to take place. The hands represent deeds. Cleanse your hands. Well, what does it mean to cleanse? Well, in this section, James uses two words that essentially mean the same thing. He, he says, cleanse your hands, and then he says, Purify your hearts. This is Old Testament imagery. Douglas Moo says the imagery of both washing and purifying stems from the Old Testament provisions for priestly purity and ministering the things of the Lord. But both verbs have come to be applied more broadly to ethical purity as well. So, so cleanse and, and purify both have to do with the, this idea of ethical purity. And the word cleanse specifically means to purge of evil. Get rid of the evil. Cleanse your hands means to, to stop doing sinful deeds. Stop the sinful action. Stop sinning in that way. 
James is saying, turn from your sinful deeds and actions. Stop committing acts of sin. Turn from all of your sinful ways. And and who is James commanding to, to cleanse their hands? He says, you sinners. Hermatolos. This is a this is a person who who has disobeyed divine duty. But this is an interesting term. Because because it's usually used as a term of of classification. And because of this, different scholars disagree. Some scholars say there's no way he's referring to Christians with this term. But I think he is. This term has shock value. In the New Testament, we oftentimes see people classified as sinners. For example, Jesus was, was condemned. Why? Because he ate with tax collectors and who? Sinners. Our, word, our Lord said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you for even sinners? Do that. He, he's classifying these people by their, by their sins because that's what they do. That's who they are. They are, they are sinners. This is not a term that is usually used to describe a Christian because this should not be a term that can be used to describe a Christian. A Christian should not be known by his sinfulness or by her sinfulness. And again, this was probably a, a very shocking thing. That they, 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 they have known of, of, of the, the condemnation of Christ for, for eating with tax collectors and sinners, and now they're being called sinners themselves with the same term. This, this would be an alarm. Wait a minute. We're Christians. And you're calling us by the name you call those who don't know Christ? What are you saying? Moose says the, the, the strongly negative descriptions of the readers pick up the similar denunciation that opens this paragraph. You adulterous people. These blunt addresses gain all the more strength from their contrast with James' tickle, typical addresses. James usually refers to his readers as brothers or even beloved brothers. And now he says adulterers. Sinners. The, the shock value there. And, and he's doing that on purpose. Moose says clearly he sees his readers as both Christian and in need of a wake-up call that will bring home to them the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behavior. This is a wake-up call. A wake-up call. James used this word to, to essentially show that they are, they are not living as Christians and he can classify them as sinners at this moment. If you are living right now as a professing Christian, indulging in your sins, these words are for you. If you are backsliding right now, living in sin, turn from your sinful ways, you sinner. Does that cut? Those are the words of James. 
that, that, that needs to be alarming to you, shocking to you. But here's the question. Is James simply saying, just, just turn, just, just reform your actions and you'll be fine? You just, just turn away from your deeds of sin and that's all you need to do. Then, then you're set. You're, you're good to go. Once your hands are clean, you are clean. Is that, is that what James is saying? Is repentance just a change of our external actions? James' readers were guilty of many things. Blaming God for temptation, showing partiality, misusing Scripture, sinful speech, fighting and quarreling with one another. Is James just saying, stop committing those sins, dear readers, and you'll be fine. Just reform your actions. Thomas Watson warns about what he calls counterfeit repentance. He says, sin may be parted with, yet without repentance. And what on earth does that mean? Well, he gives several reasons why a sinner may, may part with a sin without actually repenting. And I'll give you two. One of them, he says, is an old sin may be left in order to entertain a new. As you put off an old servant to take another. This is to exchange a sin. Sin may be exchanged and the heart remain unchanged. That's a warning. When James calls us to to this repentance, he's not saying, you know, the sins you're committing right now are very heinous, so just switch it to different sins. And the sinner should take no, should take no comfort in the fact that, that although he cast off one sin, he simply replaces it with another. That this is not genuine repentance. But then secondly, he says, sin may be left not so much from strength of grace as from reasons of prudence. A man sees that, that though such, such a sin be for his pleasure, yet it is not for his interest. It will eclipse his credit, prejudice his health, impair his estate. Therefore, for prudential reasons, he dismisses it. What is he saying? This sin is causing problems in my life. So let me just cast off this sin. But but I'm not really penitent. I just recognize that, that even though this sin is pleasurable to me, it's ruining my life, and, and, and so I, I'm going to cast it off and, and turn away from that sin simply because it's the prudent, prudent thing to do. He says, true leaving of sin is when the acts of sin cease from the infusion of a principle of grace as the air ceases to be dark from the infusion of light. What is he emphasizing? He's emphasizing what James is getting at in this text. True repentance is not just a reforming of external deeds. True repentance deals with the heart, the motives, the desires. Notice what James says. Not just cleanse your hands. But he goes on, and purify 
your hearts, you double-minded. Purify means to make free from sin. So, so here again, the idea of turning from sin. But now he's talking about the heart. He, he's talking about the motives. We're, we're not just repenting of our deeds. But there's motive involved. Calvin said this, We hence learn what is the true character of repentance. It is not only an outward amendment of life, but its beginning is the cleansing of the heart. The question is not, can you stop committing that sin for a while? The question is, have you repented in your heart? Is your heart changed? You, you're not going to be able to cast off your sinful deeds for good without first dealing with the heart. You may exchange one sin for another, but your heart won't be pure. Listen, trying to, trying to deal with sinful deeds without dealing with the heart is like treating the symptoms of a disease instead of the root cause. How many of you know this? That this sin has mastered me and I've tried again and again and again. And I've tried to set up every barrier to committing the sin that I can. But it doesn't work. Why? Because the heart has not been dealt with. But by the way, this is how biblical counseling should be done. Getting to the, to the heart of an issue, not, not just focusing on the external actions, but, but the heart, the motive, the desires. What, what does this look like? Let me give you an example. Chapter 2. James condemns the sin of partiality showing favoritism to the rich and despising the poor. Now, what does cleansing the hands look like in that, in that regard? It means treating the poor and the rich alike. You're not treating the rich better because they're rich. You're not despising the poor because they're poor. You're, you're treating them alike. You're not showing partiality based upon their wealth, based upon external factors. So, so, so that's what the cleansing of the hands looks like. Stopping yourself from doing that. No longer doing that. But what is the heart behind such actions? Because all day long we could say, don't do that. But what's in the heart of the person who's doing that? Perhaps wealth and power and position in society are idols to James readers, and because of their desire to obtain such things, what are they doing? They want to gain favor with the rich, even to the exclusion of, of the poor altogether. Just treat them like dirt. Why? Because the idols of my heart desire what they have, so, so I need to please them. This is how we get to the heart. James even hints at this. In chapter 3, when he, when he deals with the, the sins of the tongue, he, he says, with your tongue, what do you do? You, you, you bless God, but then you, you curse others who are made in the similitude of God. And out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And James talks about how sinful the tongue is. And, and he goes on and on talking about the, the destructive power of the sinful tongue. But, but he doesn't just say, bite your tongue. What does he say? 
can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. What is he saying? No spring yields polluted water and clean water, but yet you have polluted words and clean words coming out of your mouth. Now, here's the problem. What is he getting at? There's a fountain from which these words are flowing. Your your words flow forth from the fountain of your heart, as it were. And if the words are polluted, it gives you an indication of what's in the heart. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what James is saying. It's coming from your heart. He's giving you a hint. He didn't say it directly here, but but he's giving a hint. If If your words are polluted, guess what? This comes from the heart. What did Jesus say? Out of the heart proceed murders and adultery and all these other sins. They come from the heart. This is the indication that the heart must be dealt with. Yes, you need to bite your tongue and stop speaking those sinful words, but understand they are flowing from the heart. Deal with the heart is what he's saying. But then James actually does this for us as an example in chapter 4. How does he begin chapter 4? He does it with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There is strife. There are fights. There's contention in the church. Brothers and sisters who have both been been brought by the blood of Christ are, are fighting one another like pagans. And James says, where does this come from? He's talking about sinful deeds here. Christians fighting one another. There is this external fighting taking place. He could just say, stop it. Stop the fighting. But he doesn't do that. So he asks another question. He asks a question and gives us an answer. There are sinful fights, sinful deeds taking place in the church, sinful actions. Why? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. We say, what do you mean, James? Well, he says in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You hate your brethren. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What's going on in the hearts of those believers who are fighting and quarreling with one another? There is covetousness. There are sinful passions that are, that are uncontrolled. Some of them have covetousness in their hearts, and, and because they, they could not obtain what they were coveting, they, they, they started fighting and quarreling with one another. There, there's jealousy and there's envy in the heart. I want what that person has. I, I covet what they have, and because I don't have it, I, I'm jealous and I hate them. I'm
in them. Stop foods in their heart, but inevitably, whatever is in the heart will eventually come back out. So the, so the peace that would result from that would be temporary because the heart was not dealt with. The heart was not changed. Do you see how this is getting to the heart? And do you see the danger of, of not dealing with the heart? We, we can have a false assurance of our, of our repentance because we, we've, we've, we've become more moral outwardly. We, we, we repented outwardly, but our heart has remained unchanged. Our sinful deeds come from sinful motives. Allowing things in our hearts that should not be there. And understanding that, that action stems from the heart is, is why James addresses his readers in the way that he does. What does he call his readers now? He says, purify your hearts. Who? You double-minded. This word could literally be translated double-souled. It's defined as characterized by a duality of selves that are in opposition to one another, especially that result from a lack of decisiveness. This is a word that, that is believed that James actually made up. This is the same word he uses in chapter 1. How does he use this word in chapter 1? The person who prays and doubts. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from God. He's a, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, what James is saying there is, listen, if you pray and then doubt, you're a living contradiction. You're saying by your prayers that you believe that God answers prayers, but then you say by your doubt that God doesn't answer prayers. So why did you pray? You're living. You're like spiritually bipolar. You're double-minded. And James says, so it is with a person whose motives are not pure. You are double-minded. How many of you recognize that in your heart right now? You want to serve God. You say that. If somebody asked you right now, do you want to live for God? You would say yes. But then you know that you're living for yourself. And you feel like you have these two conflicting desires in your heart that, that are warring with one another. This is what James is talking about. This person is, is double-minded. And this is, why James, this is what James is getting at when he uses the term adulteresses. You, you claim to be in covenant with God, yet you live as an unfaithful spouse. Matthew Henry said the hearts of the double-minded must be purified. Those who halt between God and the world are here meant by double-minded. To purify the heart is to be sincere and to act upon this single aim and principle, rather to please God than to seek after anything in this world. That's what it looks like to be single-minded. He goes on, hypocrisy is heart impurity. But those who submit themselves to God aright will purify their hearts as well as cleanse their hands. I love that. Hypocrisy is heart 
impurity. It's, it's double-mindedness. This is why he's saying purify your hearts. It's impure. There's hypocrisy there. There's a double-mindedness there. You, you, you set up an idol in your heart in competition with God. You're double-minded. You're seeking your idol, and yet you're trying to seek God at the same time. This is the person who's living in their sins. This is very instructive to us. Moose says to allow the world to entice us away from total, single-minded allegiance to God is to become people who are divided in loyalties. Double-minded. Dear friend, are you divided in loyalties today? Are you divided in loyalties? Can you say that I seek God above all else? Can you say that today? And if you don't know Christ today, you have a problem. You you have a very real problem. Why? Because you may be able to clean up your life a little bit. But without Christ, you have no power to deal with your heart. Think about this. Can a man earn salvation by works? James says it's not only clean hands that you need, but but a pure heart. How many people can purify their hearts without Christ? No one. You, you, you can't even cleanse your hands without Christ. But, but, but imagine trying to, to make your heart perfect. You see, it's not just a matter of, I desire this sin, th- this is what's in my heart, but, but if I just resist this sin hard enough, I won't do it and I'll be right with God. No, he says that sin in your heart, that's a problem as well. How do you deal with that? You need Christ. He's the only one. That, that can deal with the hands and the only one that can deal with the heart. But, but, but what, why do we do this? Why, why do we indulge in sin? Specifically the backslider who, who is living in sin. What does James tell us in, in chapter 1? Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. Now put this together with what we see here in chapter 4. Why is this person committing sinful actions? Because his desires are drawing him in to temptation. It is his desires. No one is making him sin. His desires are being drawn and lured like bait into temptation. But here's the question. Why is he being lured? By bait. Why does he desire those sinful things? Why would bait be alluring to him? Because he's double-minded. Although he professes Christ, he is not seeking to please God above all else. He has, he has, a, he has competition in his heart. He, he's seeking his own pleasure as well. But why is he double-minded? Because there are idols in the heart. Things that are placed above God. So these idols in the heart 
causes him to be double-minded because he, he's seeking to, to gratify that idol. And so now he's double-minded. And because he's double-minded, he has sinful desires. And because he has sinful desires, he, he's lured into temptation. It's actually appealing to him. And this is why he sins. We see what is happening in the hands is coming from the depths of the heart. We talked about David's sin with Bathsheba. How do, we, how do we examine it? How do we, how do we interpret that in light of something like what James is saying? He sees a woman bathing. And she's, she's beautiful. So he desires her and he commits adultery with her. Why did he do that? He knew it was wrong. He knew it. Why would he do that? Is it because her beauty was so captivating that it's not possible for man to resist? Is it because we're just lost? I just did it. That's my son's answer to everything. Why did you do that? Because I did. No, it goes deeper than that. There was something wrong in his heart at this moment. Let me prove it to you. Let let me give you a contrast to David. Think of Joseph. Genesis 39. He's put into Potiphar's house. A man with power and authority in Egypt. And Joseph is made a ruler there. What happens to Joseph? Potiphar has a wife. And she notices that that Joseph is pleasing to the eye, both in form and appearance. She casts longing eyes upon him, and she says to Joseph, Lie with me. Commit adultery with me. She's seeking Joseph. But but what is Joseph's response to this? My my master has given me many things in my hands, but, but he said, I cannot have you. How can I sin against my master and commit this great wickedness against God? She doesn't quit. So we read that day by day she spoke to Joseph. And he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But, but something else happened. What happens next? She catches him alone in the house while he's working and there's no other men around. So she literally grabs his clothing and says, lie with me. She's begging him, pleading with him to sleep with her. And he flees. He runs. By the way, how many, how many men in here 
could do that. But believe me, she was not an ugly woman. He, he was a power, Potiphar was a, Potiphar, a powerful man in Egypt. He could have had probably any woman in the land he wanted. It's not because she wasn't pleasing to the eye that Joseph ran. A woman begging him, begging him, and, and actually has a hold of him, and they're alone. And he doesn't do it. Why? Is he just a different breed of man? So we have two men standing before us, David and Joseph. Joseph goes out of his way to resist temptation, running, fleeing, even getting himself in trouble by leaving his garment behind. He's not taking a chance. And David goes out of his way to commit adultery. He calls for men to inquire about a woman. And once he knows she's married, he has her brought to him. Both of these men are men with with sexual desires. Vulnerable to temptation. What was the difference? Joseph reveals to us his heart when he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is his concern. That is his desire to not sin against God. He wants to please God. But clearly, something else is in David's heart. Imagine David David sitting there. And he's walking on the roof and, and he sees this woman bathing. If at that moment, the greatest desire of his heart was to be pleasing to God, what would he have done? He would have turned his eyes away and laughed. But something lured him. Because something was not right in the heart. And and, and maybe it's selfishness and greed. But by this point in time, David had multiple wives, but, but perhaps it just wasn't enough for him. Maybe selfishness, maybe greed was an idol in his heart. We don't know. Or maybe it was covetousness. Coveting his neighbor's wife. I know I have a wife. I have several wives. But she's different. I I want that too. You know, even even if David saw this woman by accident and, and he saw her bathing and it aroused something within him, he could have gone to, to one of his multiple wives and had that desire satisfied, but he did not. Why? Because he wanted that. There's something different there. I haven't had her. This is covetousness. I cannot be satisfied unless I have that which I don't have yet. Lord, I know you provided me with this, but I need that one in particular. And so whatever David's heart idol is here, we can even reduce it farther to what? A lack of contentment. I'm not content with what God has given me. 
Therefore, I need more of what I have or I need something different than what I have in order to truly be satisfied. Let's reduce it again. Why am I not content? Perhaps it's because I made pleasure an idol in my heart. And and because pleasure is the God of my heart, it is a God that can never be satisfied by man. So so he's in a constant state of discontentment. So how does that work? A man has has an idol in his heart of sexual pleasure. And because it's an idol, it it demands his allegiance. And so now he's double-minded. He says he belongs to God, but, but he's now starting to, to, to go after this idol, to, to satisfy this idol. And because it's an idol to him, he never has satisfaction, so he's not content with what he has. And because he's not content with what he has, he thinks he needs something different. And because he can't have what's different, because he knows it's wrong, it doesn't matter. Why? Because it's the only way to be satisfied. I must satisfy this God. And so David is standing there, and, and here's Bathsheba. Can I have this woman? No, you cannot have her, but why do you take her? Because the idol in my heart won't be satisfied unless I do. That's where the idol needs to be crushed. True repentance must deal with the heart as well as the hand. And listen, David, David as well as anyone knows this. He, he knew it. Because we have this, this confrontation between him and Nathan, and he finally comes to his senses, and he writes this, this psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. And what does he say in this confession? He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. He knows that his hands are dirty. He has blood on his hands. He has committed sinful deeds. His hands are not clean. But is that the extent of his problem? No. So what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. He recognizes that my hands would not have shed blood if my heart was clean. My hands would not have desired that married woman if my heart was clean. The heart is the issue. If our desires are leading us into sin and we recognize that we are double-minded... Perhaps it is because we have an idol in our hearts. If you've been living in sin, listen to me, you you must deal with the heart. You can't just change your actions. This is not simply a a self-help step. If you just set yourself up correctly, you won't commit those sins. No, listen to me. If lust is an idol in your heart, I don't care what you put in the way. Your heart will find a way to gratify it. Does that mean that we're not wise? No, that's not what I'm saying. We, We put up barriers to our sin, obviously. We don't make it easier for ourselves to sin. We, we want to make it hard, but we must recognize, deal with the heart. 
Listen to me. If you are never satisfied with anything your spouse does, ask yourself, well, what is in my heart? Maybe, maybe marriage is an idol in my heart and I, th- and I, and I thought it was going to be the, the, the solution to all. Once I got married, I was going to be happy ever after. And I'm not. And it's my spouse's fault because she's not everything that I dreamed of or that I saw in a Disney movie. Maybe it's idolatry. I'm always angry with my children. Every time they act up, I'm, I'm, I'm furious. Is there an idol in the heart? Maybe the idol is my authority. How dare you transgress my authority? And so the desire of my heart is not to shepherd them for Christ. The desire of my heart is to, to show them my indignation that they would dare to disobey me. Or maybe my ease. And my comfort is an idol. So that every time they, they do something that requires attention, I'm angry and, I, and I'm upset. Why? Because my comfort and my ease in life is disturbed. My desire at that moment is not to lead them to Christ. My desire at that moment is to have an easy life and they are disturbing my idol. We must check our hearts. We must check our hearts. Perhaps you're always anxious, sinfully anxious, because of what others might think about you. Perhaps the opinions of men is an idol in your heart that needs to be dealt with. Maybe you are enslaved to lust. But perhaps it's because sexual pleasure is an idol in your heart. You, you make it your greatest need. and you, you, it's, a, it's a need in your heart. It's a God in your heart above God. So that instead of obeying God, you obey your lust. If you are constantly compromising your beliefs, in order to please and satisfy others. Perhaps popularity is an idol in your heart. You're going to change what you believe to fit the crowd. Why? Because the most important thing is not that I don't sin against God. The most important thing is not that I obey and please God. The most important thing is that I am popular, that I am liked, that I am well-loved and well-thought-of by men. You see all these idols that we can have in our heart. I think it was Luther who said that the human heart is an idol factory. It just creates idol after idol after idol. But we must recognize these idols. Stop just dealing with the, the outward conformity. Recognize the idols in the heart and cry out with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. And for the believer, 
We need to see these idols and beg God to, to cleanse us of these idols. We need to, to recognize these idols and, and mortify these idols and seek after God. And once again, for the unbeliever, you are powerless here. You need your heart cleansed by the blood of Christ, which means you need to profess faith in Christ. You need to trust in Him for salvation, and you need to turn from your sins, and He will cleanse you. There's no other way to have your heart cleansed but by the blood of Christ. Clean hands and a pure heart. This is repentance. What was the question of David in Psalm 24? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? What's the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you're focused on the hands and not the heart, that's not true repentance. Listen to what Spurgeon says. If our hands are now unclean, let us wash them in Jesus' precious blood. And so let us pray unto God, lifting up pure hands. But clean hands would not suffice unless they were connected with a pure heart. Listen to this. True religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God, for our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. Do you hear what he's saying? Listen to me, unbeliever. You you think you're going to fix up your life And that's going to make you look good in God's eyes. Listen listen to what Spurgeon says. Your, Your heart is more you than your hands are. And God sees it. You can't hide your sinfulness from Him. Just because you resist and you, you live a moral life does not mean that God does not see the wretchedness in your heart. He sees it all. The, the, the thoughts, the, the, everything in your heart, everything in your mind is exposed before Him. You are naked before Him. He sees all and will judge based upon all. This is why we need a Redeemer. Our righteousness before Him. Your morality before Him, the prophet says, is as filthy rags. That's what your good works are to Him. Why? Because no man can be good enough. But the good news is that God has actually provided a sacrifice whose works were acceptable to Him so that when we believe in Jesus for salvation, His righteousness is imputed to us and God sees the righteousness of His Son instead of our sins. And our hearts are clean. Spurgeon said there must be a work of grace in the care of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand, or our religion is a delusion. A delusion. 
If, if all your religion does for you is, is help you conform some of your external practices to the Bible, if all your religion does is help you become a little more moral, but it doesn't deal with the heart, with the motivation, with the desires, it's a delusion, it's fake, it's false, it's phony. Because Christ changes the heart, which changes the actions. We're not preaching morality here. We're not preaching moralism. We're preaching heart change that leads to, to a change in our actions and our deeds. And let us remember what we're doing here by turning from our sinful desires and by purifying our hearts and, and turning from our sinful actions. What are, what are we doing? Remember, we're being told to draw near to God. Repenting unto God. Listen to what Watson says about repentance. It must be a turning from sin as turns unto God. We're not just trying to turn from sin to a neutral position. We need to be turning unto God. Turning from sin is like pulling the arrow out of the womb. Turning to God is like pouring in the balm. We, we read in Scripture of a repentance from dead works and a repentance toward God. Unsound hearts pretend to leave old sins, but they do not turn to God or embrace His service. That's the question. Are you turning from your sins to service to God? Are you turning from your sins to draw near to God? That's true repentance. He says the repenting prodigal not only left his harlots, but he arose and went to his father. In true repentance, the, the heart points directly to God just as the compass needle points to the North Pole. That's repentance. Leaving behind our sins. Resisting the devil. Opposing Satan. Resisting temptation. Leaving behind our sins. Dealing with the heart. Leaving behind the harlots. And returning to our Father. And what is the, the glorious promise we have? When we draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Dear Christian, living in sin, listen to me. God stands there waiting for you as the, as the, the father of the prodigal. In your heart, you're hesitant. Maybe, maybe I've sinned against Him and maybe He'll just take me back to be a servant. And so you move towards him hesitantly. But just as the, the, the father of the prodigal, what you will see when you, when you move towards him is that he embraces you with open arms.
So we come to the time in our service where we remember what Christ has done for us through the shedding of His blood and the breaking of His body. And we have talked about this, this idea that, that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And this is, this is a strange thing because we, we read in Scripture that, that our sins have made a separation between us and God. And, and we ask the question, how can, can a holy God allow sinful creatures to draw near to Him? And how can a holy God draw near to sinful creatures? And we are reminded in the Lord's Supper that it was the body of Christ being broken. It was the blood of Christ being shed for the remission of our sins that we can actually draw near to a holy God. And it is only because of Christ's righteousness upon us and His payment of His blood 